on this episode of Dig Me Out. I love this album. I think it's really, really, really good. There's just an energy to this album that's it's just undeniable. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi. Joining me again, my co-host, Jason Ziak. Jay, first question of the evening. What is your drink of choice? Um, Miller High Life, but I'm feeling like it might be something else because the, uh, the iChat is doing that weird robot voice for you, which is kind of making me feel weird. Did you spike it with some... <laughs> acid i didn't but my computer is i think having an acid trip right now isn't miller high life the champagne of beers it is nice it's my favorite cheap beer i uh, i decided to go um red stripe light tonight so i saw that they uh they had been at the store and i picked up a sixer feeling jamaican yes are we doing are we reviewing a a reggae album tonight we are we're gonna do sublime and uh i'm walking off the show right now (laughs) i knew that would uh, good uh, good episode we're doing back-to-back sublime and mighty mighty boss tones as a matter of fact so god i know that you're psyched about that we'll get to the squirrel nut zippers in time people don't worry (laughs) i might have hit the three bands that you hate the most from the 90s hmm well, do you like them more? Well, I, you know, there are a couple hey, of Mighty Mighty Boss Tone tunes that I don't mind. Yeah, I don't... Uh, they're the least hated on, on that list. I, I like their earlier me. stuff. Not to be a music snob, but I, I do enjoy some of the earlier stuff before they did went like commercial radio and started writing ballads and pop hits and stuff like that. Oh, the I, early stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm like that, you know. You're one uh, of those guys. I do not like Sublime or the Squirrel Nut Zippers for that, just for the record. Those are, those are bands that will never see the light of day on this podcast. And if they, and if you do like them and you're offended by that, um, you can send an email to the complaint department and uh, we will file it. But let's get to um, some music that people do like. Jay, we are doing another multi-listener suggestion tonight. This one... <laughs> was suggested by many people. Uh, that Norman, can only mean good things. Yeah, Norman Frazier, who suggested Llama Farmers. Norm. He also suggested this. And uh, Alessio was a emailer. I don't know Alessio's last name. But they both sent us an email and said, hey, check out Curb Dog. And I said, will do, dude. All right. <laughs> I, I responded with all my emails like I'm a surfer. Well. But we're going do, to stop uh, doing that. Yeah, we're going to um, do a little history before we actually get into the record. So let's do the history of Curb Dog. History of the band. Yay! Curb Dog formed in Kilkenny, Ireland, in 1991. They originally were called Roller Coaster. Oh, man. Cormac Battle on vocals and guitar. Colin Fennelly on bass. And Dara, Dara, D-A-R-R-A-G-H. That's a 
Irish name I'm probably going to totally slaughter. Dara Butler on drums. They were in college. They uh, left school and started playing mostly covers, Sonic Youth, Spaceman 3, types, uh, that type of stuff. Uh, they moved to London but failed to get a record deal. In 1992, Billy Dalton joins the band as the second guitarist, and he is a big metalhead, specifically Metallica and Slayer. <laughs> they sort of combine this, uh, you know, heavy guitar influence of Billy Dalton with the Sonic Youth and Spaceman 3 trippy experimental sound, and uh, start playing shows. Uh, at that point, they changed their name from Roller Coaster to Curb Dog. Curb Dog was in honor of a California BMX team that they were big fans of. So once I found, once I read that, I'm gonna oh that name totally makes sense now. I didn't know what the hell Curb Dog was, but that's where the name comes from. They played a show opening for Therapy. I'm always confused. Is it just Therapy or is it Therapy? Because they have. A- <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, they opened. For February of 92, and then the guys in therapy said, um, you guys should send some demos to record companies, and they did, and their first demo got 22 labels responses in 1992. So they set up a series of dates meeting with record companies over two days. They met with 11 record companies a day over two days. They signed to Mercury Records subsidiary Vertigo Records in 93, and recorded their debut album at Rockfield Studios in Wales at the same time that Sepultura were recording their 1993 album Chaos AD. Interesting. The album was this the first album was produced by Jack and Dino. And who I guess flew out to Wales to make the record. They uh, did some gigs in 94, including a run of uh, shows supporting Therapy, and scored a couple of singles, um, top 40 in the UK, nothing in the United States. So in 96, Mercury Music Group is, gets bought by Polygram, and Curb, jo- Curb Dog shifts to Fontana Records, which is uh, Vertigo's sister label at Polygram. They head to Los Angeles and hook up with producer I, I just I don't know how to pronounce this person's name it's GG Garth it's but there're 3 G's and then or 2 G's and Garth all is one <laughs> Garth He previously worked on uh, Rage Against the Machines um, album I guess was the the first album And uh, there was a funny quote from Garth he said, uh, we did one record with the band named Curd Dog, and we started off with about 25 cabinets and amps. It took about two days just to go through them all, but we got the best sound that we've ever gotten. We used old Les Pauls, old Strats and Tellies, different strings, different pickups. So I, I thought that was an interesting quote, and we'll get into it when we get into the record. But So immediately, not immediately, but a, a few months after the band returned back to Ireland, Billy Dalton, the guitarist, left the band. Um, so they went on as a three-piece. Uh, they got a ton of positive press, 
prior to the album coming out from Kerrang, Metal Hammer. Um, the editor of Kerrang actually spent a weekend hanging out with the band in their hometown of Kilkenny. But there was uh, delays in releasing the album, and it was finally released in March of 97. It sold poorly. They, the label dropped the band, and then they deleted their catalog, which was even more insulting. The band played for another year without a label, but broke up. And they played their final gig at the Mean Fiddler in Temple Bar, Temple Bar Dublin, on March 7th, 1998. Uh, a couple of the guys in the band went on to other bands. They reformed in 2005 just to play some shows. And from 2005 to 2008, they've played random shows, but have said they have no interest in making any additional music. So they only have the two albums, the self-titled album, which came out in 94, and the album we're reviewing, On The Turn, which was released in 1997. And that is the history of Curb Dog. So, Jay, I wanted, I highlighted that quote about the guitars Mm. because this to me is a very 90s guitar oriented album and I wanted to get your feedback on that because you are something of a guitar aficionado (laughs) oh really I thought mentioning the Les Pauls and the old strats and the the multiple cabinets that might pique your interest so what did you Mm. think of Curb Dog and their use of multiple guitar amps and old vintage guitars in the making of on the turn um i love this album i think it's really 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 good probably top three at least of of the albums we've reviewed so far for me um it connects with me really well it's right in my sweet spot of of what i like um and, and i mean if you break it down to the simplest level it's it's a great marriage of melody and edgy dark heaviness uh obviously the guitars play a big part in that but i think the best part of this album is actually the songwriting i think the songs are fantastic um they're got great energy they're really melodic really got big almost every song has a huge chorus um but underneath it all is this really thick uh, heavy guitar um, It it's kind of interesting that you're pointing out that they went through so much effort to get the guitar tone I think the guitar tone on this is awesome it's really really good but in a lot of ways it kind of just sounds like they plugged into a dual rectifier a Mesa Boogie dual rectifier kind of sound um, and it's pretty it sounds like a kind of a just a straight you know, dual rectifier tone to me. Um, it's kind of surprising that they went through so much effort to kind of create that tone, trying to use Marshalls and different guitars. And I, I don't think any of the. It's the kind of it's actually the kind of guitar sound where the guitar itself almost becomes irrelevant. It 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 it, it is so thick, so mid rangey that it be almost becomes a keyboard a synth kind of sound, especially in the choruses. Which, from a songwriting standpoint, works really well because it makes all those parts sound huge and really um, epic, and uh, really enhances the vocal melodies a lot. Yeah, kind of fills the whole middle of the the album. You don't really hear the strumming at that point. You just yeah. hear this like constant barrage of what you say, like mid-range guitar tone, 
and it almost sounds you just sounds like you're just pressing down on a guitar or on, on a piano. Uh, yeah, like track one, it literally sounds like they're just playing chords on on a uh, analog synth during the chorus. think that's from layering multiple guitars with multiple different um i don't know um, and then and basically I, creating a wall of heaviness i don't know because you don't really hear you kind of hear two just two guitars now i mean if you do that really 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 well it becomes it should become invisible how many guitars you're doing it with part of me just thinks it's um or at least when i listen to it without knowing sort of the backstory and the history. I just thought, you know, hey, they're using probably a fuzz effect on those choruses, on the, on the guitars. Um, the two guitars sound almost identical, like tone-wise, they're very, very close. Um, you know, so a lot of bands use, they'll, they'll try to use a Fender or Gibson sort of um, texture, so you, instead of using two Les Pauls, they'll use, a, you know, one from from each sort of family of style guitars right with theory that that together creates a really rich sound and the two balance each other really well um this band just sounds like it's you know two guys playing basically a lot of the times the same riff sometimes they'll um do a really cool secondary part um but for the most part they're really locked together and tonally they're they're really in the same ballpark to me um but I still hear it as two guitars. I don't hear it as like six or eight or even a huge layering. I, I hear it as two guitars with with a tone dialed in on the amp, but also maybe the addition of a big muff or some sort of fuzz effect to kind of um, it'll give you the sustain that that a keyboard does, so that maybe you can do kind of what they're doing in some of these choruses and stuff, or everything really locks together and, and you lose the sense of the strumming and the um, the attack of the guitars and you just hear the sustain and the tone which is really good um you know just kind of going through this album and i mean jump in here if you if you uh have some thoughts on these but yeah. the first three songs are just killer i mean they're just great up-tempo um kind of pop hard rock songs they at this point you know, you know listen to the album the first time through at this point in the album you know the first three songs i'm thinking uh, Foo Fighters. I mean, that's the band that's kind of coming to mind a lot. I'm also thinking Bob Mould, which I was kind of surprised to hear in the history of the band that that, <laughs> that he wasn't involved in some way or another, because it seems like every time I hear that, he ended up producing the album or was involved with the album in some way. But I heard a lot of uh, Bob Mould in this, um, and then I heard a lot of Foo Fighters, particularly in the choruses, when when the, um, the vocal kind of gets pretty aggressive. He sounds a lot like Dave Grohl to me. I, the um, the first that... Foo Fighters album 
the the stuff like um, I'll Stick Around and Alone and Easy Target and those songs, not like the really poppy songs like Big Me, but the yeah. ones that really do feature a lot of guitar, those are the ones I, I, I totally agree with you. They, they have a, a similarity. Um, on those first three songs, did you find, I, I, I kind of got fooled because, you know, his voice at times reminded me of the lead singer of Placebo. I'm naming. Mm, yeah. I'm, I'm missing at the moment. But because that first song, it's a clean guitar and it's his vocal by itself. And I was like, oh, what's what is what's this going to be? And then the heavy guitar comes in, you know, within 15, 10 seconds. And it, it's like a hammer back and forth. It's like drop, drop the distortion, clean guitar, vocal. And then he started, then the heavy guitar comes and he's like growling. So it was a really interesting um you know dynamic that they used but i was sort of off kilter the first time i heard it i sort of i was like whoa what's what's this going to be about and then once you hear through the whole album you're like oh, okay that makes sense yeah the first song kind of yeah it throws you when the intro comes in and it's just him and it's just a vocal and a clean guitar it, it reminded me a lot of a band i like uh, from the 90s called verbo which um vocally is very similar at least in that song but yeah you're right it's it sort of has this really cool back and forth where you get these i would say i don't know does it is it is it is it that he's over enunciating you know or just really enunciating really clearly and he almost sounds like i don't know kind of the vocal sounds like really smart but almost talking well i wonder if that's because so i didn't necessarily know that they were irish so when i started listening um, I never caught an accent or anything, um, and I'm wondering if that enunciation is in order to sort of smooth out, you know, and, and the the vocal and get rid of any accent, because uh, like you, there is a, definitely like a clarity to his singing that you don't hear mm-hmm. with a lot of bands of the same um, genre. I, uh, one thing that I noticed, you mentioned the first three songs being kind of what you would say like heavier Foo Fighter range when you hit songs I noticed it like five six and seven I heard mm-hmm. a lot of helmet in those oh my god yeah it gets heavy as hell yes and I, I kind of love that area era oh yeah area of the album because they basically just start dropping into halftime pounding those halftime rhythms the way that helmet would and um just turns into uh, Meantime would be the would be the one you'd pinpoint for that one. But there's still melodies everywhere. Oh yeah, like it's still got tons of hooky elements to it, which, I mean, those songs right there, that pocket of songs, that four, three to four songs, 
you know, when I listen to them, I'm like, this is what I want Helmut to sound like. <laughs> and they kind of barely ever do. And, and this is, you know, kind of the way I always envisioned that band, or what I always envisioned that band turning into. And these guys are just delivering it. And it's just awesome riff after awesome riff. I mean, track five, where, where the heavy part of the album really kicks in, it has a very stereotypical drop D riff to it. But it's done so well that I don't even care. I mean, it even does the, like, you know, kind of play the the, the riff um, on clean guitar, kind of muted, and then you kick into the distortion, and then you go back to the clean guitar, and, you know, the quiet, loud um, dynamic that was super popular in the mid to late 90s, and even is now. Um, it, it does that, but it doesn't even matter just because it's so well-written, it's so well-performed, and it just there's just an energy to this album that's... It's just undeniable. From from the first song to the end, you're just I just couldn't stop bopping my head and sort of tapping my foot and just being continually pulled into it. Um, they do a really good job of not, even though a, a riff like that can get repetitive, they do a yep. good job of changing it up pretty quickly so mm-hmm. that you don't get bored with listening to what you would say is a pretty stereotypical drop D riff. Like they're switching between halftime and regular time. I didn't sense a lot of like weird time signatures on this. Maybe they're mm-hmm. more subtle than I realized, but they do a good job of like playing the dynamics and playing the time signature changes and playing um, even just you know on the first song, which is Sally. Uh, there you think that you've hit the chorus of that song, and then it like elevates another yeah. part, and you're like, oh. This is the chorus, right? A lot bigger and brighter, and um, they're really good at sort of tricking you in that way. Because you think a band like this is not going to write a catchy chorus, that they're going to just sort of yell something at the at the point where the chorus would be, and yeah. that would be your chorus part. But they actually do find, um, you know, melodies and and like you said, his songwriting is a lot. I don't want to say smarter necessarily, but he, he put a little bit more thought into his what he was going to write about um, than just like you know. And not to bash on Helmet because I love a lot of what Helmet did, but you know the songs would just be repetition, and that would be the he'd just shout repetition. Yeah, I mean I, this and has so much more dimension to it than Helmet does, and, and a lot of the bands in that Tyne album. I'm, I'm not going to sh- do that kind of stuff. The, the Mean Tyne album is still, to me, a classic. And I don't think you get this record without having that record. I think that the yeah, probably. natural progression I mean, in that record, but instead of, you know, what ended up being the follow-up, which was Betty, I think this would have been, if this had been the follow-up to Meantime instead of Betty, Helmet might have been the biggest band of the 90s. Yeah. But I think I, I hear a lot of other, I mean, I hear Tool um, here and there, which is interesting because it's another band that, I think didn't maybe to more of an extent than Helmet did, but really didn't ever deliver on the potential they had. And one of the things that they're able to do is there's moments where they do um, sort of a quiet part or a vocal that kind of has a very tool-like mood to it. But then they they you know change the time and they bring it up tempo and they simplify it or they they find a really good uh, melody that they all latch onto and, and sell it, and that's just something that Tool never was able to do. They would just get lost in these polyrhythms and you know slow, long songs that just never went anywhere. And these guys can like they can dip their toe in that, but then they can 
can pull it out and you know sort of go somewhere else with it which is is really cool and exciting and um like you said there's there's so many songs on here where you know you get to the pre-chorus you're like oh this is awesome and then they get to the chorus and you're like oh my god you gotta be kidding me like i didn't even know they had them had it in them and then there's some killer breaches on here you know the um song uh, i think it's mexican wave track four best part of that song is the bridge i mean the course is good but when they get to the bridge they go in this whole other chord progression and it kind of takes on this uh even more melodic sense to it and um i don't know it's just uh, one of the things that's weird about it is that from a production standpoint um i was listening close like the third or fourth time i listened to it I, I was listening closely to the drums and the bass trying to hear what was going on there and the thing that's strange is that it almost sounds like a drum machine or at least samples. Like there's parts where he goes to like cymbals and they're really squashed and, you know, it could just be an artifact of the compression, but, um, they're, when you, in, when you, in, when you listen individually to some of the instruments, um, they don't sound fantastic at times, but somehow the overall sound still sounds great. So if you kind of like, I don't want to listen to this stuff, I sort of like will go back and forth where I'll sort of listen to it as a whole, but then I'll try to like focus in on particular things. When you focus in, you're like, oh, wow, that doesn't sound so good. But when you pull yourself back out again, the sound as a whole sounds fantastic. Um, and, I, and at the end of the day, that's really what, you know, is what's most important. But um, right. it's just interesting to me that I think a lot of bands that I think we've reviewed that have tried to do that, you know, Quicksand comes to mind. Um, where stuff gets so over compressed that you know it starts to it starts to hurt the dimension of the music and it starts to make it so flat that um, you know you can't really you can't really dive into it that far you kind of gotta keep a distance because it, it gets brittle and um, there's just no dimension there to find but I don't know they do they're able to pull it off on this album in a, in a strange way that I don't think a lot of the bands we've we've reviewed or able to do another band that came to mind that we reviewed was um called seaweed which was okay sort of you know suffer from the same problems um but these guys they kind of do what all those bands were doing they just do it better and they sort of put it all together in the right in the right combination i think that the the compression aspect comes in in that they were definitely trying to make a radio-friendly album, 
uh, specifically for, for the U.S. I mean, if you think they, they started making this record, I think it was 96. So you still had bands like Soundgarden and, you know, Helmet was semi-relevant still at this point. And um, some, some heavier rock bands were still charting. Whereas mm-hmm. when this actually came out, which was March of 97, that's after Soundgarden's broken up. That's when you start to see Hanson and the Spice Girls on MTV every five minutes. And a band like this doesn't fit in with the Limp Biscuits and the Corn as being a heavy band. Because these guys were, you know, you look at a picture of them, they're still kind of alternative looking. Um, so they were, you know, the, the, the guitarist was into like Metallica and Slayer, and you can hear that in his playing, but he was still kind of, you know, leading what was basically a heavy alternative band. Because they weren't, they weren't a metal band in the traditional sense, and in, in, in the, um, what was defined in the 90s as a metal band. Yeah. Boy, but it, uh, this is one of those those albums that it's good enough that it, it really, I, I think if it got the proper, it sounds like the band was a mess. The situation around the band was a mess when the album came out. Um, if it just got a little bit of promotion, I, I just, I think it could have transcended all that. I think it was that good. It's sort of in the way that the Foo Fighters have. If you really think about it, they're the kind of band that they're very rare. I mean, they're doing something that no, Nick, in some ways, like, um, if you're a huge rock music fan, you listen to what they do, and you're like, oh, big deal, whatever. But if you listen to what's going on in radio and sort of what they're butted up against, there's nobody out there that does what they what they do and for as long as they've done it. Um, no, they're, they're, so, they're the last, like, alternative or even just straight-up rock band that's still able to consistently make records and tour without and they don't, imploding. And they can just... Yeah, and they can just sort of evolve their sound a little bit, but they don't have to become a different band. Like, they're essentially the same band they've always been. I mean, they've evolved with new members, and sort of the song ratings got more complex and stuff, but it's not like they went through some phase that they sounded completely different. You saw the uh, the documentary on them, right? Back and forth? Yeah. I mean, that, that gives you a really good indication of, you know, why that band has both survived and struggled, because... They have a leader in, a, in that band who is the well-defined leader who runs everything and writes the songs and has a drive. He's been doing it since he was 12 or whatever. He had a leg up because he was in Nirvana. But, I mean, Curse Novoselic had a band after Nirvana. <laughs> 75 didn't do anything. You know, yeah. granted, it was less commercial. But, you know, he had as much opportunity as, as Dave Grohl. And nobody thought that that first Foo Fighters album... You know, upon first listen, was gonna turn into what this band turned into. Yeah. You know, they made themselves well, accessible with videos and a lot of touring. So. That's... And then I think that's what's what didn't happen for for Curb Dog that had they kept kept things together long enough, maybe caught a break. You know, got a tour with a band like that, or or another band that maybe just had a little bit more um, commercial appeal. And they could get these songs exposed. I, you know, having no idea what they sounded like live. Hopefully, they were they were a good live band. But you know, I, I think this could have transcended a lot of that and just 
because I think the songwriting is strong enough that it would have fit on radio somewhere. I mean, the hooks are there, the hooks are there, and it's heavy enough that it wouldn't have sounded, you know, that far out of place. No, um, it's just it sounds like it was just a bad, bad timing and just a bad situation, which is really <laughs> depressing. <laughs> Because when I heard this, I was like, man, I hope these guys have, like, six albums I haven't heard yet. <laughs> nope. They, but they do have one by Jack and Dino. So that's yeah. worth checking out. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely get to that one uh, down the line. So Well, something uh, I discovered about them when I, when I was digging around trying to find those other albums, uh, on Spotify, there's actually a tribute album. Yeah, I, I was going to mention that. There, uh, it came out a couple years ago. It might have even been, like, last year. There's a tribute to Curb Dog. And I think all, like most of their songs were covered by fans, um, which is pretty cool for a band that, you know, there's been a, not to bring us up again, but there was a Catherine Wheel tribute that's available on the web at, I believe it's Catherine Wheel's cover compilation. Uh, you just Google that, which our band contributed a song to. Now, Catherine Wheel was around for... 12, 13 years. They put out five or six albums, depending on if you count the compilation album. Um, they had a lot of material to cover, and they had a lot of fans. And they they got they toured the United States and played CMJ, and they you know they got played on MTV. This was not a band that was on that level in terms of popularity and stuff. So the fact that they have a dedicated fan base that would actually record all their songs over two albums plus I'm sure B sides and stuff like that, which I actually uh, I have a list, Jay of because uh, that's how much research i do of all the songs that they covered on their singles because they were a big fan of covering other bands hmm. they covered the deba- uh, debaser by the pixies they covered uh songs by sonic youth the jam husker do public image limited the specials big black the steve albini band from uh, the 80s and other ones so and it's funny because going through there you can be like i hear a little bit of that band in there or "Ooh, i hear a little bit of that that's hey that was our bob mold connection right there they covered a husky do song there you go so it all it always comes back to either bob mold or steve albini it's about <coughs> rocking something they did something a couple things they did do on the album that i don't know if you picked up on but again sort of playing out some themes we've mentioned previous shows that that really help one is the choruses um they almost always double they have another vocal i don't know if it's a singer the lead singer doubling himself or doing the harmony or whatever but there's always a good second vocal introduced there sometimes more um the other thing i noticed that you don't hear a lot of bands do in the 90s that you and i know works really well is they add tambourine to their choruses yes especially you'll hear it right on track one when they get to the chorus it's subtle um, but it's in there and it definitely, sometimes it really, it kind of makes a chorus a chorus. That is you know, a, uh, that's a hidden trick of, uh, of recording engineering is, uh, if you want your chorus to kick it up a notch, add a shaker or a tambourine very subtly into the mix and, um, it'll, it'll help. It works. It helps. Yeah. yeah. It helps define that section of the song. It really works well. Yeah. I know. There's probably a lot of bands out there that 
would never do that, but at the end of the day, you know what? It works. Yeah, it does. It doesn't work for every song, but it works for a hell of a lot of them. Yeah. And it's it's used to, um, more than once on this album um, to great effect, so I thought it was interesting for the style of music they're playing and for how heavy it is, the fact that they would do that. Um, it kind of says a lot to me, because it, it says that, you know, they were they were um, not afraid to, to try everything they could in order to take um, sort of this heavy heavy music that they were into and try to make it melodic and make it connect with people. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what pop music's about. Love it. You know, you can say what you want about it and sort of downgrade it, but it connects with people, and that's one of the reasons why I make music. Right. <laughs> Is to get a reaction out of people. Well, they weren't, they weren't interested in sticking to works. a particular ideology. They were like, we're yeah. going to write the best song possible, and we're going to do what it, what calls for this song, and if, if, if adding a, a tambourine is going to make this part of the song better we're going to do that we're not yeah. going to you know there's no like handbook that says you must not put tambourine in a song of this style so yeah who All produced right. this uh this was G -G -G garth gg what garth. Else did he, do? he did rage against the machines either first or second album i'm not sure oh really yeah wow this doesn't sound anything like that to me uh, uh, I guess that's a good uh, thing. Some other albums were produced by him in the 90s, but... Huh. Yeah. Okay. So, so uh, two thumbs up for Curb Dog and their album, On the Turn. We need to thank Norman and Elise, Alessio for uh, suggesting this one. Uh, Norman is two for two with his picks of uh, Llama Farmers and uh, Curb Dog. Dude, I think you might have a new best friend. I know. Uh, I think you're right. Norm, send us more suggestions. He's got some more, and there I know that there are some good ones. So um, we're all booked up for 2011, but he'll have some more one, some more um, picks coming up in 2012. And uh, if you want to pick something for our 2012 calendar, send us an email at digmeoutpodcast. What is it? Digmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. Or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. Whatever. Uh, let's do a plug. Can we do a plug for Stitcher? Oh, yeah. We just got added to Stitcher, which is a streaming audio service that... Well, no, no, no. Wait, 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 wait. That's the wrong way to say it. Okay, explain it, Jay. You're the tech, you're the tech guy. <laughs> uh, Stitcher is an app that you can get. Uh, it's free for your iPhone, iPad, or Android phone. The great thing about it is that it gives you access to... Um, all the great podcasts that are out there or most of the great podcasts that are out there um, you don't have to you can listen to them at any time um, you don't have to you know sync it up to iTunes or anything like that you just launch this app go in there do some searches do some browsing you'll find Dig Me Out on there and you'll find a bunch of other uh, really popular and, and not so popular but still good uh, podcasts that you can uh, basically favorite and listen to whenever you want and Basically, as soon as they're released, they're available and they're listened to. So, in a lot of ways, it's probably the easiest way to listen to podcasts. Boom! There you I, go. Ow! We're not even being endorsed by them. I'm just glad that we're in there. Yeah. So, thanks for listening, everybody. If you're listening to us via iTunes or Podbean or Stitcher, we appreciate it. And we'll be back uh, next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.
visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. <laughs>